So for this summer, we have been in a series studying the minor prophets. And these minor prophets are only called so because the books they wrote for the Bible are the shorter books, unlike the big one like Isaiah of 66 chapters and so. But today we're looking at the prophet Jonah. And he's a unique prophet because he was a prophet. We hear about him in, um, in the book of 2 Kings. But the book of Jonah was not written by Jonah. It was actually written about Jonah. It was about something Jonah did. Um, now, this is a story we're usually familiar with, but I'm going to give us a little different take on what we usually uh, expect to hear about Jonah. But I'm also going to do the Scripture reading a little differently as well, because today I'm going to incorporate the Scripture reading into the sermon itself, because uh, there is so much buildup that needs to go in to introduce the Scripture. So instead of doing that, reading the Scripture and the sermon, I'm just going to incorporate it into the sermon. So we're not going to read it all at the beginning here. I will have it read out throughout the sermon, and we'll read it that way. You can still follow along with it right here. That's printed in your bulletin. It's going to be Jonah chapter 4, 1 to 11. Um, but we still need a prayer of illumination before we begin. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Good and heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your holy word. We thank you for the gift of your revelation, Lord, that you've spoke to the prophets and to the apostles and to the Holy Spirit that speaks to us today. And Father, as we approach your word, Lord, we know we can understand none of these things unless the spirit that inspired the words would inspire us and teach us today. So we pray that spirit be upon our hearts and our minds that you would instruct us, teach us, um, open us to your word, Lord, to give us hearts that understand and hearts that have the courage to follow your commands. Father, I pray that you bless the holy reading of your holy word, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So when I was, um, I guess, high school, early college, I learned an important lesson from an early mentor of mine. He was a guy named Spencer Parks, and he was the director of a camp I worked at, and he was also a preacher too, and he taught me the important lesson of whatever you preach on, no matter how you feel about it, how strongly you feel about it, how convicted you are that what you're preaching is right, you always need to be ready to accept the consequences for what you say. You need to always be ready to accept the consequences for what you say because what you say is true as you might believe it is may not be so well received by the hearers of your sermon. Uh, to give a case in point, he told me about a uh, church he was preaching at as a, uh, as a supply preacher. Now what a supply preacher does is he goes to little churches who either are in between pastors or they can't afford one and so they hire one on a Sunday-by-Sunday Sunday basis. And uh, he was working as a supply preacher, and he was going to this church, and he had a great relationship with them. They loved him. He loved them. They asked him back almost every Sunday until one Sunday. One Sunday, he said something that they were not happy about at all. This is an old country church down south, talking about early 80s here. And Spencer got up and he preached to them that as much as God loves the Americans, he loves the Soviet Union just as much. I gasped. <gasps> How dare he? 
Now, now some of you who weren't alive during the Cold War, they don't remember the Cold War, it's kind of hard to think why that was such a big deal. But believe me, it was a big deal. The Soviets were the bad guys. The Soviets were the enemy. Now, it's, it's hard to compare them today because we don't have the same kind of enemy as we did then. I know we still got Russia, and Russia's doing lots of bad stuff these days. But believe me, they're just a shell of their former self. And from what I understand, part of uh, Putin's idea is to get them back to where they were during the height of the Cold War. And I know we got China, but China, we've got a funny relationship with them. They need us, we need them. It's, we don't like each other, but we need each other kind of deal. But no, the Soviets were bad guys. The Soviets were awful. They were the communist regime. They stood against everything we stood for. They stood for everything we stood against. They, they oppressed their people. Their people had no freedom. It was so bad, you weren't allowed to leave. If you lived behind the Iron Curtain and you were caught trying to escape, they would shoot you. We saw videos of people trying to escape the Berlin Wall getting killed. That's how bad they were. And if that wasn't bad enough, they wanted to kill us. They wanted America gone. That was their goal. Have America gone and Soviet Union as the supreme power. And if you don't think that was bad enough, they also hated Jesus. Actually, they, they hated the church. They were a vehemently atheist regime. And I was told a, a story as a kid about them, and I don't know if it's true or not, but it kind of sets the mood for what we thought about the Soviets then. I was told that in the Soviet Union, every third grader, sometime during his school year, was told by the teacher to bow their heads and pray to God for a piece of candy. And so the kids would close their eyes and bow their head and pray to God for a piece of candy. And after a few minutes, they would open their eyes and look at their desk, and guess what? No candy. And then the teacher would say, now I want you to bow your heads and pray to the Soviet Union for a piece of candy. The kids would close their eyes, bow their heads, and as their eyes were closed, the teacher would go around and put a piece of candy on every desk. And so when they opened their eyes, behold, prayers were answered all the gift from the soviet union now this this is the enemy and these are the people spencer parks a friend and mentor went to a country church small country church in the south when the cold war was its chilliest and told the people there that god loves the soviets just as much as he loves the americans and it was blasphemy. Because how could God love the freedom-loving Americans, the, the church-loving, the God-fearing Americans just as much as those godless, awful Soviets? Didn't make sense. Didn't make a slightest bit of sense, and it actually sounded like blasphemy. It's a hard message to hear that God loves the enemy and of course when i say the enemy what i mean is your enemy i want to say enemy too i'm not meaning just uh, a person you don't like or somebody that you have an occasional rivalry with 
An enemy is somebody who stands against us. Someone who stands on the opposite side of us. Think of it, the things that you stand for, the enemy stands against. The things that you stand against, the enemy stands for. And to kind of get some clarity about if you want to know who your enemy is, the enemy is that person or those people that you think that life will be better if they just weren't there. Now, I'm not saying dead, but just not here. A person or a people, if they just weren't here, either in your life or at your work or at your school or maybe even in this country or maybe even not existing. Now, I know all of you, we don't always want to admit that, but we've got somebody that we think that life would be better, America would be better, the church would be better if this people group or this person just wasn't here or if they were quiet or if they would just stop being whoever they are. That's the enemy. That is the enemy. And it's always startling to know that that person, the exact opposite of us, that person is as loved, as much loved by God as you are. God loves that enemy just as much as you. This has always been a hard message to bear. Even for, even for God's people, even for people who are trying to be good, it's a hard message to bear. Even the prophets didn't like this message. And the prophets were, 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 were people picked specifically for their holiness and righteousness that they could deliver God's message. Even they didn't like to hear this message that God loves the enemy. This is what made it so difficult for Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites. Now, normally when we hear the story of Jonah, we hear it as kids. We hear the story of Jonah as kids, and the story we hear is that this story is all about obedience and disobedience. God sent Jonah somewhere. He disobeyed. He got swallowed by a whale. He decided he should obey God. He got spit back up on the beach and decided to obey him and you know, the, the, the pictures are always these cartoon, and there's the whale smiling and Jonah smiling, and it's all just happy and cheery. And unfortunately, we hardly ever read this story as adults and get to look at it through adult eyes. And if you haven't had a chance, you should do it. It's a small book, four chapters, just a page in the back of the page. It'll take about 10 minutes. But when we read the story through adult eyes, we find out that the theme really isn't disobedience at all. The theme of the prophet of Jonah is that God loves your enemy. That's the story of Jonah. And that's the theme of the prophet Jonah. God loves your enemy. Now the book of Jonah begins like we've all heard it. God has a message for Jonah to give to the city of Nineveh. And the message God is giving them is, you're wicked, you've done some evil things, and, and Nineveh was wicked. They were pagan, they were unjust, they were cruel, they fought each other, they did all kinds of evil things, and God had gotten so fed up with the city of Nineveh, he said, you've got 40 days to turn it around. 
And so he sent Jonah with that message. Tell him, you have 40 days to turn yourselves around or I am going to destroy the city of Nineveh. And that's what he told Jonah. Jonah, pick yourself up, go to Nineveh, tell them they've got 40 days to turn their lives around or else I am going to destroy the city. Now Jonah didn't want to go. Jonah didn't want to send this message to Nineveh, so he did what most people do who were faced with this decision, and he ran away. Jonah took off, and he ran away. Now, you might want to ask, why did Jonah not want to just obey God and go to Nineveh with his message? It's not because he was scared of Nineveh. It's not because he was too busy. It was because he hated Nineveh. Jonah hated the Ninevites. They were the enemy. He didn't want them saved. He wanted them destroyed. Now, now before you, you judge Jonah, before you're too hard on him, I want to tell you he had good reason for hating Nineveh. He had a very good reason for hating everyone who lived in the city of Nineveh. It's because they were the enemy. And they were the biggest, baddest enemy that Israel had. At this point in history, uh, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And at this point, the Assyrians were the biggest, baddest dudes on the block. They were the big empire. They had just um, defeated Egypt in some key battles, so they had become the big player in the Middle East. The Babylonians hadn't risen yet, and so the Assyrians were the big bad guys on the neighborhood. And they were evil, they were pagan, they were wicked, and they were violent. In the year 722 B.C., it was Assyria that invaded Israel. And they went to war with them. And this was a time of, I mean, this was total war. There was no Geneva Convention, no rules of warfare. It was absolute warfare. And they sacked the city of, America, of Samaria. They burned it. They killed most of the men. The women, they sold into slavery. Everybody else went into exile. It was burning and looting and pillaging. And even children and infants were being killed by the Assyrian army. These are the people that God was sending Jonah to. This was Nineveh, the capital of this evil empire. And he was saying, Jonah, go to them and preach this message of deliverance and salvation. Imagine if, say, the Chinese invaded America. We had this outright China invasion, and our armies were defeated. And there was China here marching down the streets of Lexington. The American flag goes down. Chinese communist flag goes up. They, they topple our statues. They, they tear up our constitution. They burn your house. They take your property. All your family is shipped off to a labor camp. And then they cancel college football. I got some of y'all there like, wait, wait a minute. No, whoa. Cancel college football now. But imagine all that happens, and then God comes to you and says, I want you to go to Beijing. I'm angry with Beijing. They've been wicked and they've been evil. I want you to go to Beijing and tell them, if they don't turn around in 40 days, then I'm going to destroy them. What would your reaction be? Great! That's great! Yes, how about this? How about I just not go? They don't get warned, and then you destroy them. 
Yeah, that sounds like, I like that idea. God says, no, no, I, I want to save them. So I want you to go and preach to them this message of deliverance so that I don't have to destroy them. Like, no, wait, God, hold on. We can solve so many problems if I just don't deliver this message. America could be free. We could be liberated. Our problems are solved if I just don't go take this message to Beijing. Well, now you know how Jonah felt. Our problems could just be solved if I don't go to Nineveh and preach this message of deliverance. Then God will destroy them and Israel will be free. Problem solved. So Jonah ran. He ran away from God. Not that he was afraid of God, not that he was afraid of Nineveh. He ran because he wanted Nineveh to get what he thought they deserved. We know how the story went. He gets on a boat to go to Tarshish, and as he's out there, a big storm comes up because God has, has, has brought this storm because Jonah's fleeing, and, and, the, and the sailors, they, they try to figure out what God is causing the storm, and they, and they figure out it's because of Jonah's disobedience. So Jonah gets tossed out, in, out of the boat into the sea. And as the story goes, it's, it's actually, it actually says a big fish swallowed him. Not a, it could have been a whale, but... The story in the Bible says a giant fish swallowed Jonah. And he was in the belly of the fish for three days. And as he's in the belly of the fish, he repents. Says, okay, God, you win. You win. And just as a side note, you can make your life a lot easier if at the beginning you just say, okay, God, you win. And you don't have to get swallowed up by a giant fish. So Jonah goes to Nineveh and he delivers the message that God asked him to deliver. He says, 40 days, unless you repent, the city will be destroyed. And an amazing thing happens. Is they believe him. Nineveh believes him in this wicked enemy city, puts on sackcloth and ashes, and they repent of their evil ways. And guess what? God doesn't destroy it. God lets the Ninevites live because they have repented, and it's all because of Jonah. He saved the enemy. Now, as you can imagine, Jonah is not happy about this at all. And it's at this point that we pick up our scripture passage. And chapter 4 begins like this, but it, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to live, to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? See, Jonah says, look, I knew you would do this. I knew this would happen. That's why I didn't want to go. Because you're merciful and you're kind and compassionate and have steadfast love. And I just knew you were going to show it to the Ninevites. And that's why I didn't want to go. And now I'm mad. In fact, I'm so mad I could just die right now. And so it picks up here in verse 3. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see 
what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of this plant. So here we go. Jonah's angry, right? He wants the enemy dead. He's really angry about the, about the um, role that he played in this. So he goes out to pout. He's going to go out to the pout, and he's going to watch the city and see what happens. And, and it says he built a booth. And, th and this booth is just a little crude shelter made of twigs. And it gives you a little bit of shade, but not a whole lot. And so as he's sitting under this little homemade booth he's under, waiting to see what's going to happen, and he knows, he knows Nineveh is going to be saved, and he's kind of angry and resentful already. As, as he's sitting in here, it said God calls this plant to grow up, this big plant to come up over the booth and give him shade. And, you know, in the desert, this is before air conditioning, shade is worth gold. And it said Jonah was exceedingly glad because of this plant that shaded him. And then this is what happens. It says, but when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and he says, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So here's Jonah in the shade of this plant, waiting to see Nineveh, if it's going to survive, although he knows it's going to survive. And he's sitting here under the shade of this plant, and then God sends a worm to destroy the plant. So the plant withers up. And Jonah's back there just with his little booth and the hot sun and the scorching wind. And he's so upset he wants to die. And God says, do you do well to be angry about the plant? And it's kind of a question I give to my kids all the time. Because I live with a bunch of teenagers. And teenagers are always melodramatic. They're always reacting way, way beyond what it should. And Liz and I are always asking the kids, says, is this an appropriate reaction? What you're giving us right now, do you think this is an appropriate reaction? And God's asking him that. Is it appropriate for you to be that angry over a plant? Really, Jonah? And Jonah actually says, yes. Yes, it is. In fact, I should be so mad, I should be dead. He's a bit of a drama queen. Yes, he is. But that's how angry he is about this plant. So God says, if you're that mad about this plant, let me ask you this. And these are the last two verses. And the Lord God said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. God's saying, look, if you pity this plant, if you valued this plant so much, you, you didn't plant it, you didn't water it, you didn't work for it, you didn't do anything for this plant. In fact, it was here one day and it was gone the next. If you're that angry about this tiny little plant that meant really nothing to you, how should I feel about these people? How should I feel about this entire city of people and they don't even know right from wrong, Jonah? That plant is so valuable to you, what should these people 
me to me. Yes, Jonah, I know you might call them enemy, but I planted them. I gave them life. I've cared for them. I've nurtured them. I've watched over them. Should I not love them too? These also, Jonah, are my children. And I desire their good as much as I desire yours. You know, the great Renaissance artist and sculptor Michelangelo was once asked why he always carved and painted people as nude figures. Michelangelo said, I want to see man as God sees man. Of course, people always reminded Michelangelo, but Michelangelo, you're not God. Now, what this story does gives us this amazing revelation and a chance to see our fellow man as God sees our fellow man. And that we are all his children. God does not see the enemy as the enemy. God doesn't even see wicked people as the enemy. The enemy to God are just children who have yet to find their way home. The enemy are just children who have yet to find their way home. It's human beings that like to divide each other into camps. There's our side, there's the other side, there's us, there's them. It's not a division that God recognizes. And it's hard for us to realize that. It's hard for us to realize that that enemy, that person that stands against us, that opposes us, that we think might make the world better if they just weren't there, that God loves them just as much. That this dividing line, these dividing lines we draw are all just human conventions. You know, Jesus compared himself to Jonah. In the Gospels, we hear Christ saying, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the grave for three days and rise again. And the comparison doesn't end there. Because just as Jonah brought a message of reconciliation to those that were considered the enemy, so Christ sends the message to the world that gathers all the enemies back into the house of God even the Ninevites. Now, we might not have a big enemy today. There is no big, bad Soviet empire anymore. But we all have a Ninevite. We all do. We all have a Ninevite, somebody or some people or some group that stands opposite of, opposite of us, that stands for what we stand against, that stands against what we stand for. We all have those people that we think life would be better if they weren't there. Who's your Ninevite? Who is that person or group of people that you think would be better if they just went somewhere else? Is it the liberals? Might be the conservatives. Is it white supremacists? Is it the supporters of Black Lives Matter? Is your Ninevite the rich? 
Is your Ninevite the socialist? Is it the millennials? Is it the boomers? Is it that girl who bullies you? Or the guy that's always making fun of you? Is your Ninevite uh, the teacher who hates you and has got, got it out for you all the time? Or is it that coworker that's always talking behind your back? Who is your Ninevite? Can you see them as God sees them? Not as an enemy, but as somebody who maybe has not yet found the path home. We like to use the us and them a lot. But maybe the only difference between us and them is that someone showed us the way. And no one has yet taken the time to show them the way, the truth, and the life. It may be the only reason that they are still the enemy is they're waiting for their Jonah. Someone may be only reluctantly obedient. But someone just obedient enough to give them the incredible message of the good news of Jesus Christ. To God be all the glory forever and ever. Amen.